Jyotika said, she got through to just before the Anatta Lakana Sutta. Is that right? <coughs> well, this is the after the Buddha's enlightenment, he was, um, and then he, he went to Benares, he, he gave, uh, he found his uh, five colleagues uh, who had kind of deserted him when they thought he was weakening in his resolve. Uh, and they saw him eating some, some uh, milk rice, which I guess is considered a, a luxury food in those days. Uh, but then, after the Buddha's enlightenment, he realized that these five, five uh, disciples that he knew previously that had deserted him were probably ripe for enlightenment at this time. So he went to Benares, to the deer park in Saranath, and met them. And at that time, uh, the, uh, he, he recited his uh, Dhammajaka Sutta, which is setting the, the wheel rolling of, of um, setting the Dharma wheel rolling. And at that time only one disciple actually saw the, or really understood what he was talking about, and that was Kondanya. Uh, and they call him Anya Kondanya, which Anya means, uh, the word Anya in Pali means knowledge. Well, it's profound knowledge, not just uh, surface, superficial knowledge. So, the, then at the end of the Dhammajaka Sutta, when it's chanted, they, the uh, very ending of it is this, the Buddha saying, uh, Anya Kondanya, it's, uh, in other words, Kondanya understands. So that means that there was one, besides the Buddha himself, there was one Arahant in the world after the recitation of that Dhammajaka Sutta. And then after the recitation of the Anatalakana Sutta, the four others that missed out on the Dhammajaka <laughs> attained So yeah. then there were five Arahants, six counting the Buddha. And this is just a, the, the, a kind of record of after enlightenment, of the spreading of the Dhamma, of the teaching of the Buddha uh, through, it, it increases, and then from, from the from Kondanya, the, the remaining four uh, disciples, then, then uh, his cousin Yasa is, is enlightened, and then, then after that is 50 of Yasa's pleasure-seeking friends become enlightened, and then after that the, the uh, fire worshippers, the matted heresetics, which were amounted to about what a, a, a thousand or so were were in were enlightened. So this is this is just the the, uh, the legendary story of the increasing amount of of uh, as as this teaching is spread, then more and more beings realize this truth, and then it, and then it kind of uh, then the Buddha sent off monks, or they, what they called the, the first bhikkhus, were actually just, just those who had actually realized this truth that the Buddha was talking about. And they, did, they didn't have any kind of 
Sansa Veena Sangha till the, 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 the number increased. And then, then the third refuge began to appear, the refuge in Sangha. And this Sangha was developed from that time. Uh, during the Buddha's uh, lifetime, after his enlightenment, uh, to the 40 years or so after his enlightenment till he died, uh, he'd established the Sangha, the Bhikkhu Sangha and the Bhikkhuni Sangha in India. And this was spread uh, in the following several hundred years, especially under King Asoka, uh, to various other parts of the world. Now, if you, in this book, the, the Life of the Buddha, it's, it's, uh, it's from the Pali Canon itself. So it, it is a kind of history of, uh, the, of the Buddha and his teaching uh, from the actual scriptures. And of course, scriptural writing is sometimes uh, rather difficult to understand in, in terms of modern Western scientific thinking. Uh, if you, you'll find some of this a bit strange and a bit odd to your sense of what you think is normal and natural. But remember that, that, uh, that the language of scripture is, isn't to be considered kind of factual or statistical. It's, it can be, it's very symbolic and also it's It, because of its, its symbolic nature, it's sometimes, in, in our terms, our ways of thinking, it's, it's almost untranslatable into modern English, because we want to, we, we think very much in terms of, in, in more kind of scientific, rationalistic ways. And the value of myth and symbol sometimes passes us by as we try to figure things out on, in a very practical, pragmatic, materialistic way. Now the, when the Buddha said, let's see, then the Blessed One explained, Kundanya knows, Kundanya knows, and that is how that Venerable One acquired the name Anyata Kundanya, the one who knows. Then Kundanya, who had seen and reached and found and penetrated the law, or the Dhamma, whose uncertainties were left behind, whose doubts had vanished, who had gained perfect confidence and become independent of others in the teacher's dispensation, said to the Blessed One, Lord, I wish to go forth under the Blessed One and to receive the full admission. And then the, then the Buddha said, Come Bhikkhu, or Ehi Bhikkhu. Uh, the Blessed One said, The law is well proclaimed. Live the holy life with a complete ending of suffering. And that was his full admission. Now in July, I think around the 24th, we're having an ordination um, of uh, monks down at Chitterst. Four Anagarikas will, will enter the uh, holy life of the bhikkhu. And that's much more complicated. It's not just, we don't say, come bhikkhu anymore. <laughs> Can't get away with it. We have a regular ceremony that was developed. But, but the actual first bhikkhu was just the Buddha saying, Ehi Bhikkhu. And Bhikkhu, 
the actual meaning of this word uh, is a beggar, one who begs or is alm, an alms mendicant, uh, one who depends upon alms or the offerings of other beings. So the, 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 this is a significant uh, word in the, in the understanding of Buddhism because uh, like my name, Sumato Bhikkhu, uh, Sumato the beggar, mm -hmm. When I was president of the Buddhist Society, I said, so you have a beggar as the president <laughs> after having a high court judge. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, I mean, the term has become almost respectable now, bhikkhu, and, and it's, uh, but it doesn't mean a kind of vagrant, uh, down-and-out beggar. It's a, it's a holy person, a person leading the religious life trusting in the goodness of others. So the, the whole bhikkhu sangha or samana sangha that the Buddha established was established on this idea of alms mendicancy. And this is to be uh, maintained, as they, especially in the Theravada school, it's, it's um, very much a, a the, the alms mendicancy is very much encouraged. Uh, in, in, in our tradition in, in Thailand, in the forest tradition, we, we were never allowed to touch money uh, or possess or have power over money or, or anything like that. So that we, uh, I've never had any money for about 22 years now. <laughs> uh, or even touched it. Once in a while by accident, somebody sends you a letter with money in it. But there's, but there's no intention or, uh, or desire to keep it. So uh, this is a dependency only on, say, as a bhikkhu, you, you train yourself to, to live in such a way that you uh, trust in, the, in the, what is benevolent in this universe so that you're, if you need anything, it's generally provided without any great problem. never found this alms mendic mendicancy any great difficulty, actually. In Thailand, it was very easy because the whole country responds to it. They, they just know everything about it, and it, most of the people are Buddhist. And then I was in India for a while, and I lived on alms there without any great problem. And here in England now for 11 years without any great problem. So it's nice not to have any money. <laughs> Let's see. Then the Blessed One taught and instructed the rest of the bhikkhus with talk on the law. Here they use the word law for the Dhamma. Uh, and this, remember, is the way, the natural law, the, the way things are. If the, the Buddhist teaching is a reflective teaching on the way things are that we can observe when, we, when we're mindful and open and, and using wisdom, uh, we, we begin to understand the, the natural way of things. And that's why in this country many people, English people, will say, oh, I think I've always been a Buddhist, when they hear the Buddhist teaching. And they're surprised, they, oh, I think I've always been a Buddhist. Because many people do quite, you know, do have a, a natural understanding, a, an understanding of nature, a, a kind of sensitivity, intu intuitive sense towards the, the natural way of things. 
that they've never equated with anything other than maybe their own their own peculiar mind or just never really never really had any any term for it but when they hear Dhamma then many of them will say oh well yeah I, I guess I've always been a Buddhist uh, when I attended a funeral up in uh, Doncaster several weeks ago and uh, people there most many of the people were not when were not Buddhist at all and when I gave a, a short talk at the funeral uh, afterwards many of them commented well I think I've always been a Buddhist or things like that out here as he did so there arose in the venerable Vapa and the venerable Padya, the spotless immaculate vision of the Dhamma. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. They too asked for and received the full admission. Then living on the food they brought to him, the Blessed One taught and instructed the rest of the bhikkhus with talk on the Dhamma. All six lived on the food brought back by three of them. Then there arose in the venerable Mahanama and the venerable Asaji the spotless immaculate vision of the Dhamma and they too asked for and received the full admission. And then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus and then this is the discourse called the Anattalakana uh, the, the Sutta or the discourse on not-self, the characteristic of Anatta or no-self. Bhikkhus, material form is not-self if material form were self, this material form would not lead to affliction, and it could be had of material. It, it could be had of material form. Let material form be thus. Let my material form be not thus. And it is because material form is not self that it therefore leads to affliction, and that it cannot be had of material form. Let my material form be thus. Let my material form be not thus. Now in this particular way of talking, you know, it's a reflective way of, uh, it's, it's what we call reflective thinking. He's not saying, he's not trying to tell them that they don't have any self and they're supposed to believe it. Or that the material form of their bodies are not themselves. It's actually, he's leading, you know, if you begin to understand this particular way of reflection, he's, he's getting them to contemplate their bodies then if you, if this was really me, this body was really mine, I'd, I'd be able to control it. I'd be able to say, don't get old. I'd be able to, to uh, I'd have power over it to make it what I wanted. Uh, but because it follows the natural laws uh, and doesn't follow my desires, and if, well, I'd like it to be healthy all the time. I'd like it, say, if, if I'm identified and attached to my body, and I'd like it to be attractive looking, healthy, comfortable, without pain, without sicknesses, uh, not age, uh, and so forth. You want, want it to be something other than the way, the way it is. But because the body is, is not a self, is not really ours, then it's just following the natural laws, the way of Dhamma. And therefore, you're, you're reflecting on it like this, rather than not trying to convince yourself that it's not yours, but just beginning to contemplate it. What is its nature? Is it really what it seems to be? Is it really me? Am I really this, this, this physical uh, form? Is this all I am? And if, if it's all I am, then what happens to it? Well, it, it dies, doesn't it? 
it gets old and dies. So then, that, that if, what the Buddha is saying, if, if it were really one's true self, one would have power to make it into something. Uh, one would be able to, 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 uh, to make it obey. But because it is Dhamma rather than self, then we must accept it, its limitation, its changing nature, the, uh, its limitations, its defects, its pain, whatever way it happens to be, is to be accepted uh, as Dhamma rather than judged in a personal way as being wanted or unwanted, liked or disliked. And that's that's with the material form of the body, and then it goes through the five khandhas, the feeling, or Vedana is not self, perception, sanya is not self, formation, sankharas are not self, uh, vijnana, consciousness is not self. If consciousness was self, this consciousness would not lead to affliction. Uh, and then it, he skips over, the because it is all rep repetitive in the sutta, uh, the, the fifth kind of consciousness. If consciousness were self, this consciousness would not lead to affliction, and it could be had of consciousness. Let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness be not thus. And it is because consciousness is not self that it therefore leads to affliction, and that it cannot be had of consciousness. Let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness be not thus. Now we have consciousness, don't we? And consciousness is the uh, sensory consciousness, is our ability to, to um, see, hear, smell, taste, touch, th and think, and feel. So, so this consciousness is, uh, if, if we identify with it, uh, as consciousness is ourselves, then we tend to be, uh, say, we suffer from the fact that, that consciousness implies that we're also going to experience pain as well as pleasure, ugliness as well as beauty. Now if, if the Buddha is saying, if reflecting, if this consciousness were really mine, then I would be able to just, it would be, just register what I like, what I want, what is beautiful, what is pleasurable, what is uh, pleasant to listen to, what is uh, fragrant to smell and good to eat. But because consciousness is just this way, it's, it's the, we're going to experience pleasure and pain and the, the, all that, that is possible within this conscious realm uh, of the positive and negative, then it is not self. It is just the way it is. It's Dhamma. Then he says, how do you conceive this bhikkhu? Is material form permanent or impermanent? And they, because it's impermanent Lord. But is, what is impermanent, unpleasant or pleasant? And the reply is unpleasant Lord. But is it fitting to regard what is impermanent unpleasant and subject to change as this is mine, this is what I am, this is myself. No, Lord. And then he uses, uh, how do you conceive this? Uh, and feeling, perception and mental formations. And the same with, uh, with consciousness. Therefore, because any material form whatsoever, whether past, future or present, in oneself or external, coarse or fine, inferior or superior, far or near, should all be regarded as it actually is, by right understanding thus, this is not mine, this is not what I am, this is not myself. 
And any feeling whatsoever, any perception whatsoever, any formations, any consciousness whatsoever, ever, uh, can be reflected on as this is not myself. Seeing thus because a wise, noble disciple becomes dispassionate towards material form, becomes dispassionate towards feeling, becomes dispassionate <coughs> towards perception, becomes dispassionate towards formations, becomes dispassionate towards consciousness. Becoming dispassionate, his lust fades away, and with the fading of lust his heart is liberated. When liberated, there comes the knowledge. It is liberated, he understands. Birth is exhausted, the holy life has been lived out. What was to be done is done, there is no more of this to come. And that is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus of the group of five were glad and they delighted in his words. Now while this discourse was being delivered, the hearts of the bhikkhus of the group of five were liberated from taints through not clinging. And there were then six arahants, six accomplished ones in the world. Now this word dispassionate, in, uh, in the actual sutta, they, they uh, use the word nipindati. Uh, and... Uh, nipindati is, is the, uh, I think dispassion is, is probably the best translation. Uh, it implies uh, a coolness, a seeing, the, seeing the true nature of something. One is no longer averse uh, or uh, averse to these things. You're not, one doesn't become averse to the, the body or the feelings or, or the uh, consciousness but one becomes dispassionate. One is no longer finds, no one, one no longer finds these, these forms and these mental formations as anything that you want to cling to anymore. Then once you see them for what they are, you're willing to let them go, to allow them to be what they are uh, and not be caught up into their, through attachment, into their changing nature, only to be disappointed and uh, despairing with that result. So that this dispassion is very much the, the um, quality of the Buddhist path. It's, it, and dispassion doesn't mean uh, aversion or boredom or lack of interest or, or anything negative. It means a, a cool, calm understanding, ability to respond to the changing nature of the sensory world. Where if one is caught in the passions, say in, in passionate feelings, then these passions blind us. Everything becomes more than what it is. It becomes uh, complicated and difficult. If you're, if you're caught in your passions, then any relationships you have, any material possessions you have, uh, towards uh, your attitude towards yourself, towards your society, family, uh, profession, and all that will become very complicated and fraught uh, with the difficulties. But this passion is the human ability to b see things from from the state of calm and clarity. And this is the whole point, the purpose of say Buddhist meditation is to realize. This, this experience of dispassion, which doesn't mean a kind of blank indifference, but a clarity and calmness in which we can respond to the passions, passionate problems of other people.
Now people have a lot of passionate problems, problems with passion, and they <laughs> and if there is no dispassion, then it, then we tend to just feed our passions, don't we? We either if you if say if you're a monk and somebody comes to you filled with their problems and their passions, and you re react passionately to them, either with getting terribly caught up with their passions, or passionately angry and, and not wanting to be bothered with their passions by rejecting them or resenting it, then of course the, uh, then there's two passionate people, deluded passionate people in the world, rather than <laughs> an arahant. But if the more you can be dispassionate when people are passionate, then that is for the benefit of the of those who still are deluded by their passions, because this then they begin to they have reflection, they have the opportunity. You can see in this, if you be, if you contemplate the way the Buddha was teaching in the in the uh, Dhammajaka Sutta and the Anattalakana Sutta, it's it's the, uh, getting people, getting these disciples to look and see themselves. They're not just hearing some kind of abstract philosophy that he's trying to, he's not trying to convince them in that, in that way, he's not trying to convert them, but getting them to see to where the actual realization of the law or the Dhamma is a, a realization from the heart of the individual, not just a, uh, being impressed with the Buddha's erudition or uh, charisma. And it's the 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 uh, it's where doubt ceases because this state of thinking and passion and feeling always creates this endless hesitation, doubt, worry, anxiety in our human experience. You know, human life is just an endless series of of doubting, hesitations, uh, uh, frustrations, annoyances, uh, worries anxieties. Because when you think a lot, and think a lot about yourself, and analyze, and develop this without wisdom, you end up with a mind that will always take you into doubt and uncertainty, skepticism. And then many religions try to suppress that whole thing out of your mind by affirmation. So you find, in, especially like in, in fundamentalist Christianity, or many kind of of religions of that type, uh, where your your way of practice is a continuous affirmation. This this affirming affirming things, of course, suppresses doubt. But the the problem is that that when you stop affirming things, and the doubts come right back up again. We have to kind of ongoing affirmation. That's why born again Christians are out to convert you, because uh, they have to they have to make converts. And you have to keep this thing rolling on, this, this kind of affirmation, because when you stop, then the, the doubt comes exploding back into your mind. But this, this way of reflection on Dhamma is the way that doubt ceases. You realize the ending of doubt, and because you're, you're getting beyond just the intellectual function or, the, or the, uh, just the, the ability to remember and perceive and conceive and grasping of perception and conception consciousness, you're, 
you're, you're realizing an immortal truth, uh, an ineffable, ineffable truth, in which doubt is no longer a problem, because you're no longer caught in just the conceptual truths or the symbols for truth. Now, the, this next section is called the chapter 4, is the spreading of the Dhamma. And this is the story of uh, Yasa, who was a clansman of the Buddha. He was a rich merchant's son, delicately brought up. He had three palaces, one for the winter, one for the summer, one for the rains. In the rains palace, he was entertained by minstrels with no men among them. <laughs> For the fourth month of the rains, he never went down to the lower palace. Now while Yasa, in other words, he was a very privileged character, uh, very refined, obviously. Now while Yasa was amusing himself, enjoying the five kinds of sensual pleasures with which he was furnished, he fell asleep, though it was still early, and his attendants fell asleep too. But an all-night lamp was burning, and when Yasa woke up early, he saw his attendant sleeping. There was one with her lute under her arm, another with her tabor under her chin, another with her drum under her arm. The hair of one had come unfastened, another was dribbling, others were muttering. It seemed like a charnel ground. When he saw it, when its squalor squarely struck him, he was sick at heart, and he exclaimed, It is fearful, it is horrible. Then he put on his gold slippers and went to the door of his house and, and, and here they used non-human beings opened the door. But that sounds, let's say devas or uh, deva, devadas opened the door so that none might stop his going forth from the house life into the homeless. Then he went to the city gate and these devadas opened the gate so that none might stop his going forth and so forth. And he went to the deer park at Isipatna. Now on that occasion now the occasion was one in which the Blessed One had risen early in the night towards dawn and was pacing up and down in the open when he saw Yasa coming in the distance. He left his walk and sat down on a seat made ready for him. And when Yasa was not far from the Blessed One, he exclaimed, It is fearful, it is horrible. Then the Blessed One said, This is not fearful, this is not horrible. Come Yasa, sit down, I shall teach you the Dhamma. And so he... Uh, through the Buddha's teaching of the Dhamma, Yasa uh, was enlightened. Now the, this is, um, and, and this is, it says here, just as a clean cloth with all marks removed would take dye evenly, so too, while Yasa sat there, the spotless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose in him. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. Now note that, that this is the, what we call the vision of the Dhamma, the immaculate vision of the Dhamma is, is nothing more than the realization of what is subject to arising. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. And that is, I mean that seems very simple, doesn't it? But this is, this is a this is an insight, not a, an intellectual understanding. And this is carried on through everything. It's not just a, a, a kind of, of belief or 
a superficial uh, understanding of the of the meaning, but that applies to every possible human experience uh, that one can possibly imagine. That all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. And that's called the immaculate vision of the Dhamma. Now that is because the 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 ignorance of human ignorance is the belief in a self, in a kind of personality, and in the unquestioned uh, kind of uh, conditioning that one has through one's family, through culture, through education. Where, say, the human mind, we can be easily just conditioned to, to think, to have views, prejudices, opinions, according to uh, our, what our families teach us, what your mother told you or your father. Uh, your peers, the, the fashions of the time, the culture, the society, the nation, the class, all this is conditioning, isn't it? You're told you're, you belong to this class, that you're this way, that you, your ancestors were like this, and that you're better than these, and you're worse than those, and all these are the, the conditioning of the mind, human beings. That goes on in every society, that the I am, the view of me and mine, is established on those. I'm better than you, I'm worse than you, and I'm, I'm an American, I'm a man, I'm, um, uh, my parents were, and, and on and on like this. So that the establishment of the ego takes place through that acculturation and conditioning. And then this, this realization, or the immaculate vision of the Dhamma, is all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. So that means all those views, opinions, self-concepts and that, they only arise and cease in your mind, don't they? You can't find any permanent man or woman in yourself. Just say, just the gender of your body, if you contemplate it. It is, it is to do with the body, isn't it? There's, there's a female and there's a male. Then the, then the conditioning process of a society says, uh, you are a man or you are a woman. So then one, because that seems a sensible thing to think, uh, then all that this society teaches about men and women are come from that view. Uh, and, and one more or less accepts that, maybe unquestioningly, that women are this way, men are that way, I'm a man, I'm a woman. When you are reflecting on Dhamma, then you're not, you're not saying, I'm not a man, I'm not a woman, as a defense, or, or uh, as, as just a, to be stubborn and negative about it, but really is, is uh, the, the view of being man or woman is something that arises and ceases in your mind, isn't it? You don't have that view of yourself in a kind of continuous way. Sometimes the thought comes up, I'm a man or I'm a woman, but, but it's, not, it's not something that is... That, but when you're contemplating it as Dhamma, you see that that view is conditioned into your mind. It's not something that is, that is uh, a permanent, has no permanent kind of substance or essence to it. Even though the body for its lifetime will remain usually one gender. Nowadays they change it. But then 
it doesn't matter, whatever, even if you want to change your gender, it's still not you. I was trying to tell somebody who was having uh, an operation, he wanted to become a woman. I said, well, women suffer, is this like men do? It's not the way. <laughs> he didn't, I, I, he, he wasn't ready to believe that. <laughs> so the, this, this, uh, now that's just in regards to an obvious thing, or sometimes very unquestioned identity with masculinity, femininity. Well then apply that to other things, just very personal things, your own, you know, your, what class you, you identify with, or family, or nation, or race, or political group, or religious group, or, I mean, it doesn't mean that, that these have no value, uh, or are, that, that you should just reject them, but you're contemplating them as Dhamma now, rather than as personal attachments. So that you're not, you're not just trying to, to get rid of them, thinking that you shouldn't be anyone. But you're reflecting on what conditioning is. The conditioning of your mind, the viewpoints, the fears, the desires, the prejudices, biases, all these that you will be thinking and feeling, you're looking at now as Dhamma. They arise and they cease. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. Now, if you keep reflecting on this in a continuous, in a, in a determined way, then you have what we call insight. You suddenly realize this. It's a, it's a very clear, powerful understanding. It's a profound understanding of all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. And that it is not self. That you're not a man or a woman. Or you're not English or French or American, or you're not uh, middle class or working class, or you're not good, or you're not bad, or you're not hopeless, or you're not better in any permanent way. These things are relative, when you know they're relative to time and place, but they're not a self. You can't find anything within these mental formations that has any substance to it, or, or essence that you would that you would say is eternal or immortal and so you begin to no longer seek or grasp and identify with the mortal conditions with the rupa vedana sanya sankara vinyana the five aggregates your tendency to identify grasp uh, those five groups is stop uh, starts uh, fading out. And with that fading out, with the cessation of grasping, then you realize the, the deathless truth, the amata dhamma, or the immortal, deathless, true happiness, nibbanang paramang sukhang, let's say, nibbana, or the realization of nibbana, is, the most, is complete happiness perfect happiness. And perfect happiness is, is not the, the happiness that depends upon things being the way I want them anymore, does it? I mean, happiness is very dependent for most of us, isn't it? If things are going nice, you're happy. If you, people are kind to you and you're making lots of money and, and it's sunny weather, 
and then you then you have happiness. But that happiness is not paramang sukang. It's not complete. It's a very dependent happiness, and can easily be disrupted and destroyed. But nibbanang nibbana is complete or perfect happiness, and that's where. When you realize that, as a, as a realization of that, of non-attachment, freedom from delusion, then, then there's this sense of relief. And if the happiness isn't a kind of high, elated state, but the happiness of, of calm and dispassion and, and fearlessness, and what, we, what you might term as true bliss, rather than bliss is a word oftentimes uh, connected to drugs, people use with drug states, and they're blissed out on drugs. But bliss actually, in, in, in what it originally meant, is that, that uh, dispassion, liberation from fear and desire. Now to detour a bit. Now this, this is by uh, Ananda Kumaraswamy, who is a very interesting intellect. He was a Anglo-Sri Lankan. His, his father was a Sri Lankan Tamil and his mother was was English, and he died, I think, 1947 or so, uh, Kumaraswamy. But he, he was a brilliant, a brilliant mind. Now, the Buddha went first, and this is uh, going back to the deer park in Benares. The Buddha went first to the deer park in Benares to the five who had been his first followers. He preached to them the doctrine of the middle way between the two extremes of self-indulgence and self-mortification, that of the liability to that of the liability to suffering that is in all born beings, the cause of which uh, appetitive desire, based on ignorance of the true nature of all desirable things, must be eradicated if the symptom is to be cured, and that of the and he quotes walk with Brahma. Uh, unquote, which leads to the end of sorrow. Finally, he taught them the doctrine of the liberation resulting from full comprehension and experience of the proposition that of one in all of the constituents of the mutable psychophysical individuality that men call I or myself, it must be said, quote, that that is not myself. In Pauline, name so atta. A proposition that has very often, despite the logic of the words, been mistaken to mean that there is no self. The five mendicants obtained enlightenment, and there were now six arahants in the world. When the number of arahants, freed from all bonds, human and divine, had risen to sixty-one, the Buddha sent them forth to preach the eternal law and the walk with Brahma, and empowered them to receive and ordain others. Now,
Now, Brahma, in this case, Buddha used the word Brahma as uh, also as, as a, uh, because they, they, this was, is from the actual uh, Brahmanical religion that preceded the Buddha. And, but the Buddha changed, changed it more to Brahma as the pure, pure of heart. If you read in the Brahmavaga of the Dhammapada, uh, beautiful verses on the, the because the um, uh, the caste system of India oftentimes was very much uh, on this level of that being a Brahmin was a physical birth, and in the in Dhammapada verses the Buddha says the 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 birth is a mental one, not a physical one, and this of course is one reason why uh, Buddhism probably was a great threat to the the caste system of India because it proclaimed Brahma as a mental purity that was available to anyone who was so inclined to do so rather than on who your mother and father happened to be. Because as we all know that, uh, that, uh, uh, that physical birth doesn't mean that one is, is going to be pure in any way, does it? If you have even saintly parents Sometimes the saintly parents have given birth to little demons. So there came into being the, the Buddhist congregation of Sangha, or order of mendicants, composed of men who had abandoned the household life and taken refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, the community. On his way from Benares to Uruvela, the Buddha fell in uh, and he, he skips over the, the, um, this uh, conversion of Yasa and goes to the, this party of young men picnicking with their wives. And one of them, one of these men, uh, was with uh, um, his mistress rather than his wife, and she'd run off with some of the men's belongings. And they were all looking for her, these, these young men, there were 50 of them, looking for this woman who'd run away with their belongings. And, by, and this was, the Buddha was resting in this grove, and they happened to come upon him. And, uh, and they asked the Buddha if he had seen her. The Buddha replied, What think ye? Were it not better ye sought the self uh, rather than the woman? And this is uh, the self, sought the self, the Pali words, Atanang Gaveseyata, is, uh, is what is uh, quoted in the, uh, this is from the Vinaya. Pitika. So he's saying, what think ye? Were it not better ye sought the self rather than the woman? This answer, accepted by the young men, who subsequently became the Master's disciples, is one of the utmost significance for our understanding of the Buddhist doctrine of self-denial. We find the very Master in whom the work of self-naughting, and Kumaraswami uses the word self-naughting, as uh, anatta, has been accomplished recommending others to seek for the self. And so in one thing he's teaching no self, then he's advising these 50 young men to seek for themselves. An apparent contradiction that can only be resolved if we clearly distinguish between the selves referred to, one to be knotted and one to be cultivated. So this, this is um, 
an interesting point for reflection because this another teaching of Buddhism sometimes is, is given as a doctrine a kind of absolute rejection of a self and then the um, then, then other religions tend to proclaim a kind of soul or self uh, or immortal self or the Atman and uh, and this now this is this is one function of your mind isn't it to be able to affirm or deny so you affirm some people will affirm there is a self or a supreme self or an over self or uh, a one self or a transcendent self that's, that's a kind of metaphysical positioning and then there's the annihilationist tendency to say there's no self on, a, on absolutely no self whatsoever and, and a total denial of, of any view of self whatsoever as a kind of absolute denial now those are the two functions of the mind and the Buddha is pointing to the way the mind functions and imagine in India at that time most people had this kind of grammatical view of a, of a self as a kind of permanent uh, deathless uh, higher self and, and then, then the anatta teaching isn't a denial of that but a reflection on that, that that a view of self, even a view of a, of a supreme self is a view whatever subject to arising is subject to cessation he's always pointing to this reflection on Dhamma, he's always pointing to the way things are right now so the, the view say in the, in the Christian sense or a Jewish sense of God they say there is God uh, an eternal God <coughs> or an immortal God, or an omniscient God, or whatever what we can actually know <coughs> right now is that uh, rather than denying or affirming, is that that is a condition of the mind, isn't it? that sequence, there is an eternal God, or there is one God and that is, that is something that arises and ceases in the mind now that doesn't mean we're saying there isn't any God or that there is a God, but pointing to the, the way your mind works so that you, by doing that, as you, as you understand that and develop that more and more then the, the actual realization of Dhamma can happen to you you can, you can realize the immortal truth rather than be grasping positions on, for or against and this is, this is a this is, a, as Kumara Swami say, this self-naughting this, this is not me, this is not mine this is not what I am is, is not done from an aversion to the body or the feelings or anything but, or anything at all, but a way of reflecting and beginning to look at, at, that, at so many things that you think and feel in a different way than when you're judging it on, from the personal position now, a lot of what you think much maybe some, some of the things you think and feel are not very nice and so you you will, you will judge them accordingly you will say I shouldn't think like that, I'm bad or this is 
I'm a bad person. Uh, and from that view, then, you, then you're going to suffer, because thinking of yourself in that negative way is going to, is an unpleasant way to think, it's painful to, to think of yourself as a bad person. Then, uh, but if you begin to look at your bad thoughts no longer as personal problems, but as that which is subject to arising is subject to cessation, that's not trying to get out of anything or dismissing it, but actually seeing it as it is, because that's all it is really. Any thought you have, good or bad, arises and ceases. Any feeling, pleasant or painful, arises and ceases. And this, as this reflection on Dhamma in this way increases, and you, you, you contemplate more and more in this way of, of, of all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation, then you are able to let go of a burden of fears, doubts, worries, problems that you've created thinking that you're permanently damaged or you're permanently this way or you shouldn't be the way you are or that, that uh, you've been ruined by your life's experiences or this or that and uh, the, all these kind of things that we can make incredibly cr uh, neurotic uh, uh, obsessions with a lot of that is just very superficial and as you can contemplate it more for, uh, for what it is then it drops away. You see, you realize that, that that isn't self. It ceases. And, and therefore you're not reacting to it. You're not blindly reacting and, and suppressing or indulging in those attitudes or, or feelings or thoughts. Sometimes I think, I mean, speaking for myself, I, I used to feel, uh, I found out I had a, uh, a suffered a lot from, from feelings of guilt. And there was a feeling also I found that just by doing that, wasn't, I was trying to get out of something, that I should be punished for something or other. I don't know if any of you have ever felt that yourself, but there's, uh, a, a, I think with, with people, many people anyway, a feeling that you should be punished. So there's a, a determination, I think, in, in people to suffer for the things they've done wrong. And it's a kind of punishment uh, that, they, that they think they should Maybe it's not all that conscious, it's, maybe it's not all that intentional, but psychologically one can, can really be punishing oneself for m making mistakes or doing things or thinking unpleasant thoughts. And so sometimes this, this Buddhist practice seems, it seems like you, you, you're, you're dismissing things, just like a bad thought just seeing it as impermanent, like you're, you're getting away with it. And you shouldn't, you should be punished. You should feel guilty and horrible for thinking like that, shouldn't you? 
you should be, I mean, you shouldn't just be able to let it go like this, cease like that and be happy the next moment. You should really at least spend the next few minutes feeling terribly guilty for having thought that. Uh, but there's that tendency, as you see through that tendency to want to punish yourself and feeling obliged to feel miserable because of, of, the, of this, uh, of your humanity, then uh, more and more one, one begins to say, um, develop or cultivate this, this way of um, reflection and understanding of the law or the Dhamma which is always the relief here and now of seeing things as they are. And that's from, from say, 20, 22 years of practice in this line, it gets on to a very subtle level, uh, because so many of the, of the subtle kind of uh, hesitations and little things that, that one doesn't notice when, one, say, one is caught in more passionate, ex extreme passions, become very apparent uh, as, as more mindful you are. And actually this, all that is subject to rising, is subject to cessation, is, is, uh, is, a, is a, a, ref, a reflection that you keep, that keeps, that allows you to always have a perspective on what you're thinking and feeling. Whether it's just boredom or, or, or doubt or uncertainty or hesitation or passionate anger or lust or, or uh, jealousy or fear, whatever, all these emotional states, whether they be uh, subtle or coarse or whatever, all of it, all that is subject to rising is subject to cessation. And, and through that reflection, then the realization of the cessation. And the cessation, then, is not uh, death in the sense of, of, uh, of you dying or going blank or being unconscious. It's a cessation of ignorance. So that the, the formations still operate, the eyes, ears, consciousness, all this, still operate as normal, but it's seen from this, from wisdom rather than from ignorance. And this, 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 this simple uh, vision, all that is subject to rising is subject to cessation, or anicca, impermanence, is, uh, is the kind of heart of the, of the Buddhist uh, teaching in the uh, Four Noble Truths, the Second and Third Noble Truths, the, the, the arising and the cessation. So now, say, uh, today realize that there were six Arahants, and seven, seven Arahants, Yasa. And then the fifty young men who were looking for the, the uh, young lady who'd run away with their possessions. <laughs> now this, they well, were people somehow in India at that time somehow more kind of advanced than we are. Because 
now established Buddhism has been established and uh, we think that and people say well nobody gets enlightened anymore where are the Arahants? <laughs> because the problem with established religion is that it it tends to become exalted or it becomes specialized it becomes something more than the original teaching and therefore uh, one starts making a cult or making it in creating a religion out of it creating it into something where you can see at this point it wasn't a religion, was it? It wasn't a, a, an established convention. It was a direct transmission. Uh, the Buddha was enlightened and the people that he, that he uh, contacted, physically could, could be with uh, and met, were, were transformed by his own realization. Some, some of them, like the five disciples, had been searching, doing all kinds of ascetic practices to try to become enlightened. Working, uh, working at it day and night, and starving themselves, and who knows what they were doing, hanging upside down from trees, <laughs> covered in ashes, walking around naked, living on uh, nettles and sleeping on beds of nails or whatever and then and then the Buddha the, the one Buddha in the world was able to say all that is subject to Raja is subject to cessation and when Kundanya heard that then that was he understood immediately that something uh, immediate a trans immediate transmission into a mind that was obviously ready to, uh, to realize that. But then, in contrast to the five disciples, then Yasa was, was a spoiled rich boy, wasn't he? Wore, go wore gold slippers. <laughs> <laughs> and lived in these lovely palaces with female minstrels. Kind of a spoiled little rich boy. That, uh, that was willing, that once he heard the Dhamma, he was, he became a bhikkhu, which is, means an alms mendicant. Means you have to, you can't wear gold slippers. <laughs> We're forbidden to wear gold slippers and, and have female minstrels. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then the far fifty friends of Yasa who were out having picnics with their wives and, and cavorting all around with the. With, a, with a, a woman of loose morals. They're not exactly uh, ascetics, were they? <laughs> but through, through, their, through the Buddha's uh, teaching, stopping them, reflecting for them, and, what, chasing after this woman because she stole your things, is that really worth it? You know, you get all passionate and angry and, uh, and uh, over this, or should you look look at yourself, get to know yourself, and the, through through that kind of thing. Then these fifty young friends of Yasas became arahants, and then he goes on. Then the, the next one is on the Madhyaterasetics. These ma the Madhyaterasetics they 
they were fire worshippers and Buddha had to really work at them because the, the leader, Kasapa, was uh, every when the Buddha performed these uh, miracles he, he performed some really uh, amazing miracles for the benefit of these fire worshippers but Kasapa was always, he was kind of in a rut like a broken record and no matter what the Buddha did he'd say well that's alright but he's not an arahant like me <laughs> and so Buddha conquered a, a fire-breathing dragon and put it in a little bottle and gave it to Kasapa it's, it's a pretty good show but he's, he's not an arahant like I am <laughs> then he, he did some other outstanding miracles miraculous feats and no matter what he did the Kasapa and say, well, good show, old boy, but you're still not an arahant like me. And so finally the Buddha realized that this man was stuck in a rut. And so he said, you're not an arahant. You're not even, you're not doing anything like arahants. You're, you're deluded. And just on that, Kasapa became an arahant. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and all his... Uh, 500 matted hair ascetics cut off their matted hair and uh, became disciples of the Buddha. So at this time, anyone who must catch a train or something, please feel free to go. <coughs> After the Muslim invasions, which I think were about in the 1400s, the, um, they destroyed the universities and, and then the many of the monasteries and the rest of it seemed to be more absorbed back into the Hindu. So actually Buddhism as, um, as such almost disappeared except it seemed to survive in, in, well, it's in Sri Lanka and in uh, Burma and the borders, bordering countries in Assam and places like that is still and uh, Thailand and, and uh, Nepal, Tibet, China but those, like Afghanistan used to be Buddhist must, must, I don't, probably not a Buddhist left <laughs> Pakistan, all that was. <coughs> and the other thing I wanted to ask, um, I don't know, it, with the cessation of, say, grief, I suppose, 
say joy is is more how I use that word is much more the way you relate to people without self Uh, like with grief there's always a sense of personal loss with joy there's just the the joy of someone else's success or beauty or wisdom you see so it's not the kind of I mean, joy, I, I try to use that word for that feeling that one arises in one's mind when there's no, when there's no selfish involvement. Uh, grief is, I've been to several funerals in the past several weeks, and uh, grief is, is, a, is a very human emotion, which I think people need to accept because I think like in, in England people too many people have this kind of stiff upper lip attitude and so at these funerals I've been encouraging them to grieve rather than to just hold it all back because uh, then by grieving you, you, you can reflect on that grief rather than just trying to s- stop it well perhaps grief was the wrong word I mean the opposite of joy Right. Sorrow. Right. Sorrow. Right. Okay. But as you, you see, one, the the selfless states, say, as 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 without when when there's wisdom and and no selfish interest anymore, then then one experience, then the Brahma Viharas are more the expressions of a human to a human form. Or kindness, compassion, joy, serenity manifest through these forms. And because they're selfless states, they're from the pure, the pure heart. And so they manifest according to the situation. But they, they arise and cease like anything else because they're, they're not permanent. But their natural responses uh, when there's no selfish delusions anymore in the mind. And then the, you see, because the, the happiness and sorrow, say, if one, say if one is, one is, has sorrow, then in that sense it's, uh, there's still a sense of poor me, and why me, and all that. the me is still very strong. So, so then the happiness is very dependent upon getting what you want, and things going well. But when, when the self is let go of, then and that the illusion of self is relinquished, then, uh, say, the, it doesn't mean that one is a kind of blank, but the, the pure states, divine abodes, are, can manifest through, the, through, your, through your mind.
And that's where, you know, when we think of, of the selfless human being, it's, it's not like a vacuous zombie, is it? It's, it's compassionate being, kind, loving, joyful, calm, serene being that we, we tend to look to as the kind of the, the saints or the sages of, of our human history. But when the me and mine comes into it, then, then it's like the other day I heard somebody, a, a married couple, her, her father died and, and she was so upset she told her husband, she said, why couldn't it be your father? That's, <laughs> 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 uh, you know, a very selfish thing to say. <laughs> Yes, yes, because it's, it's then the compassion is, you know, you really understand the, the suffering of others. It's no longer feeling sorry for somebody from a self-position, but it's, it's a real under, profound, deep understanding of human predicament. You know, you see what, what it is. Not, not, not so much the the problems of human existence that we all share, but just the, the way we tend to react to them out of ignorance is, you, you see, is so, uh, is, there's so much suffering we create that onto life. This is, uh, this one, a wise person can see that there's no need to do that anymore. And that so much of people's suffering is just the creations of their mind. That life is like this, is the human birth being born in a lifetime and the death. That this means that we're going to feel, we're going to be, you know, the people we love are going to be, are going to die. And, and uh, this is all just part of our life's experience. And, it, and it, we needn't create suffering about it, around it. It's just life, really. And, and when you see it as Dhamma, then then you can accept the, the, the pain and the sickness and the, the problems and the of, of difficulties of our human condition. But when you don't understand it, then we create endless problems about it. Fearing, we, we try to control and manipulate and run away from things and blame others and, and all of that. So that, that that is something we create. And once you see that, then you, you don't create that anymore. So just the natural process, we can, we can endure that. Even at its worst, we can bear with that. Uh, and and we don't, then we don't suffer. Even though physically we may, we may suffer, we're mentally not creating suffering. But with people with terminal illnesses, Getting them to to um, not create suffering around it, and that is quite a some some catch on very quickly, and, you know, and others determined to suffer with it, and so they, they, 
friend of mine has cancer and she's seems to be she seems to be happier than ever. <laughs> and one realizes that she's accepted it and is is not doesn't worry about it. And, and uh, where the other people might make you know be very frightened and resentful or bitter about it. Now, cancer doesn't mean that she's going to, get, going to get cured. She might, she might not, but that's not the important thing. Is that her attitude is such that if she doesn't suffer, even though physically she may have, she may be suffering from, from the physical effects of the disease, but mentally she's not. There's no suffering. Is it? <coughs> Uh, a Buddhist way of life to reflect over the situation or the world rather than to improve the situation or the world. Well, you see the danger of any the danger of any conventions is that they can be misused. So sometimes Buddhism can seem like it's just a kind of fatalistic resignation. But from my own experience with it, I would say that the more I practice and understand it, the more I feel capable of offering something useful back to the society. And when I was before I was a monk, I used to be, I used to try to do all kinds of things, like I was a, I was a school teacher, um, but somehow my heart wasn't in that, I was just more or less going through the motions to make money, have a salary. <laughs> and then there was, I, I worked for the Red Cross for a year, and uh, I worked with the American Friends, the Quakers, and uh, trying to do good in the society. But there was, there was so much confusion in my own mind that I found, like say my year with the Red Cross, I found myself not really being of much use to anyone because of not having reconciled things within my own life. Here, at the time I was married, and I was having to counsel people who were having marital problems. <laughs> And I was having <laughs> marital problems. So then I, I tried to get out of that and just do counseling, like budgeting for them. Get something onto budgeting. Because on, on the other side, I was just totally, you know, how could, uh, you know, somebody stuck in the mud pull another person out of the mud? So, so there was. Uh, you know, a sense of just, you know, good intentions in wanting to serve and help others, but so much, you know, on so much ignorance and fears and, and uh, blindness within the mind. So then it became, you know, became aware that uh, that something had to be done about that first before I'd ever be of much use to anyone. And then I went to Thailand and <laughs> uh, because I did have uh, uh, trust in the Buddhist teaching, about the only thing I felt 
you know, I really wanted to uh, in really investigate and understand. But I, I can see that that uh, that uh, now in a country like this, well, the emphasis has been on social action so much, like in England, in Britain, there's so much. There's so many charities, there's so many organizations, so many causes, so many of everything on the, the level of social action, and, and like this, it's, it's endless, uh, infinite permutations on that theme. And the, uh, uh, but what is, what is really uh, missing here is wise reflection and understanding of things. I mean, you've got all these uh, kind of liberation movements and ecology, and and uh, these are all very good, but you know, not to diminish their importance, but they also can be, even when you, you know, the the real problem is really not with the ecology or with the political system, or it's with the ignorance of, in, of the individual human beings in this country. And if you can, uh, and if you can, and people are quite capable of of reflection and of enlightenment in this country. It's not like like this is a hopeless country. It's, it's uh, it seems to be very fertile ground for teaching Dhamma now, because people listen. They're willing to practice. They're willing to uh, like our retreat center in Amravati. That's been going now not quite four years, but. The, the amount of people that go on retreats there increases every now this year the whole all the retreats are all booked up before the year in advance and those retreats involve a certain amount of you know having to sit with yourself and I mean it's not like having a having a really good time <laughs> but people are willing to 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 say uh, Look at themselves and, and uh, contemplate them, and, and and from that, then you'll get. You know, I can see that 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 society will be much better when you get awakened people in it, people that can serve it selflessly rather than selfishly. Is that true of Thailand? Thailand, like, I mean, it's a Buddhist country, presumably. I mean, does it has it got to the arts of the people? It seems to be a lot of gravity still. Well, it's you've got to realize that Asian countries were very much were very badly intimidated by European ones, and they lost confidence in themselves, so that they tended to think the Westerners had all the answers. And they're realizing now that we don't. <laughs> well, I, I see like Sri Lanka and Thailand, Burma was they they you know they were really quite intimidated by all the kind of Western scientific development and modern governments, political systems. So a lot of even though they have a lot of wisdom within their own society, they, they tended to dismiss it and try to change things according to the ideas of Western, Western world. 
And now I think there's a movement back towards a rediscovery of their own uh, tradition, their own religion. I mean, uh, you know, it's, there's definitely in uh, in Thailand I've seen uh, 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 at one time it seemed pretty bleak. People were so getting so materialistic and trying to westernize and everything. And now, in the past say eight years, there's been a definite change, much more of a uh, a growing interest in uh, meditation and in practice. Lay people used to think they did, they did shouldn't meditate. It was just monks that did that. And now there are more people actually. They have big centers now for lay people in Bangkok and Thailand. And in Sri Lanka, the same thing's happening. <laughs>